to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks. Pioneer's exclusive tank liner fabric, Aqualina Fresh, is 100% made in Australia. So you know exactly what goes into making it and the high standards it is made to. Pioneer Water Tanks, leading the way in water. Welcome to the final Central Station podcast for 2020. As per usual, you're listening to me, Steph Coombs, who is the host of this podcast and who also manages all of the Central Station platforms. So that's our website and our social media accounts and both of our podcasts. Today's episode has been inspired by Lucy Daly, who featured in episode 52. When asked what message she would put on a billboard, she answered, No matter how far you've come in life, someone has helped you get there. And ain't that the truth? I know that my own initiative and drive has played a huge part in getting me to where I am today and what experiences I've had, but I also regularly reflect and experience gratitude for the people who have helped me along the way. So in today's episode, I thought I'd pay homage to some of the people who have been instrumental in my life so far. But first, I better give some context as to where I am today. So my name is Steph and I'm 31 years old. I was born and raised in the suburbs of Western Australia and growing up I had no connection to agriculture at all. So today I have worked in most parts of the beef supply chain from farms, cattle stations, feedlots, live export boats in Australia and overseas. I've even managed to spend some time in abattoirs. I have two degrees one in Australia and one I completed in the United States. I've lived overseas in both Canada and the United States. Um, In 2013, I was awarded the um, Cattle Council Rising Champion of Australia. I've photographed professional rodeos and even a show at New York Fashion Week. Um, Basically, like it sounds... It's hard to say it without sounding wanky, um, but I'm just trying to provide some context. I've been so privileged to do a lot of really cool stuff in the first part of my life. But I suppose that's what this episode is all about, is acknowledging that, yeah, I've done some pretty cool stuff, but not on my own. It's taken a village um, to get me here. And so as of June 2020, I left my job in government where I was working for pastoralists or in the pastoral space. And now I'm self-employed through my photography business and also Central Station, um, which is what's keeping me going at the moment. And I'm also involved in a few councils and committees and all those sorts of things. So I've, um, yeah, I've managed to do some cool stuff and I just want to use this episode to say thank you to all the people that helped me get here from a little nobody who'd never even set foot on a farm by the time that she started her agricultural science degree to somebody now who managed to yeah be be named cattle council rising champion like for like as the national winner um be able to consult producers 
in different aspects of livestock production and land management and just be so involved in this industry. And yeah, like I said, it's taken a village to get me here. So who do I want to thank? Well, actually, the first person or people that I owe thanks to are actually not real people, but fictional characters. And yes, I'm talking about McLeod's Daughters. Or perhaps I should thank Posey Graham Evans, who invented the show. I know, I know, McLeod's Daughters still cops a lot of flack, even today, almost 20 years after it first aired. But that show inspired me to enter the agricultural industry, and I actually learned a lot from it. So as I said, I grew up in suburban Perth, and the closest thing I experienced to agriculture growing up was riding a quad bike around the adjustment centre where I kept my horse as a teenager. Oh, and picking up bales of hay and bags of chaff and loosen from the rural supply store. I thought I was so country. I thought because I shoveled horse poo into wheelbarrows and tried to repair erosion damage caused by overgrazing on super sandy soils, I was basically a farmer. Anyway, I would never have considered a career in agriculture had it not been for that TV show. Yes, my career thus far hasn't been close to any of those episodes, And no, I am still yet to meet the Ryan brothers, but I wouldn't change it for anything. So with the dream of working on a farm firmly in my mind, I changed my university preferences the night before they closed, moving my first preference of zoology down the list and putting agricultural science in first place. Now, an agricultural science degree is nothing like McLeod's daughters. I actually suppose I had envisioned something more like an agricultural certificate where you actually learn the practical skills like driving and servicing machinery and working with livestock, uh, whereas I got to uni and it was all economics and, um, you know, soil science and biology and chemistry and oh, all the fun stuff. Calculus. Let's not talk about calculus. That is a trigger for me. <laughs> but um, that, you know, like I said, people pay out that show so much, but and, and I should probably say that it is seasons one to three. Like, let's be honest, the show died when Claire died. No offense to anybody else, but come on, seasons one to three were the golden years. But that show just made me want to, I don't know if it was the fact that they had all this wide open space or they rode horses all the time or they were cute boys, who knows? Or, you know, or maybe it was a strong female leads. I just thought, you know, that's something I want to do. I basically wanted to be Claire McLeod, even though, let's be honest, I was a bit more of a test. I actually also did learn a fair bit from that show in terms of technical content. And I remember one time I was in Indonesia at a feedlot and this animal had bloat and I'd never actually seen bloat in real life before but there was an episode on McLeod's Daughters I'm pretty sure in season one where a cow has bloat and Claire treats the animal by um, so to treat bloat one of the options is to basically puncture the animal to release the gas anyway I don't know if I recommend this for other people but I actually did that in Indonesia from having like, you know, I'd seen a few things at uni, but really it was from watching that episode. I was like, hey, I've seen this before. I know I remember exactly where to put this thing and how to use the tool. And so, yeah, for all the stuff that McLeod's Daughters was so inaccurate about, it did help me relieve a case of bloat in a cow once. So let's go gentle on them. Okay, guys. So anyway, yeah, McLeod's Daughters is or Posey Graham Evans, you know, or even the actresses and the actors that portrayed those characters, the writers, whoever, everybody involved in the production of that show. 
you mob are the first people I should say thank you to. The next thank you goes out to another group of people, and that is the Snell family from Western Australia. The Snells owned three pastoral leases in the Northern Goldfields region. So think almost like smack bang in the middle of WA, as well as a farm in Waruna, which is just south of Perth. In my second year of university, I saw an advertisement on the door of the computer lab at uni looking for people to go mustering over the mid-year holiday break. So the way that the pastoral operation works in the southern rangelands for this particular company is that it's more of a harvest. So they come in and they muster for two months of the year rather than doing, say, one, two, three rounds or spreading out muster over um, you know, six, seven, eight months like other, you know, it changes everywhere you go in Australia. But this, and for this, um, they use bikes, buggies, helicopters, planes, and they would hire, you know, local people and some backpackers. And I had no experience. I've never worked with cattle before, but they gave me a shot. And so I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I actually rocked up there with like, I guess from watching too much McLeod's daughters, um, like wife beater singlets, flannelette shirts, black jeans, woman blue jeans too, but I just looked. Anyway, what you wear isn't important. It's how you do the job. But I, I had no idea. I remember we got to the station and we had all, we'd bought up all these buggies from down south on a road train and they, um, everyone had to take one off the trailer and take it over to the homestead. And I get in this buggy and I'm like, uh, guys, I don't know how to drive a manual. <laughs> so here I was, I never watched the cattle. I didn't even know how to use a manual, uh, how to drive a manual car. Um, one of my first jobs was, you know, before we started mustering, we were just doing a bit of tidying up around the homestead. And uh, I was doing something with the fruit trees with the station manager um, and his partner. And we had to, you know, use wire cutters and, and tie off some stuff with wire. And I didn't even know how to bend wire. Like it was... I remember that it was a hot mess. It did not look pretty when I was trying to tie off wire, but um, I had no idea. On my very second day of muster, and this is probably a whole other episode in itself, I actually lost a wheel off my vehicle um, because I hadn't, I'd been distracted while changing a tire and hadn't tightened. Anyway, yeah, that is another story for another time. But basically, I'm the girl that you know lost a wheel and had to spend two days going through the junkyard, supervised to replace because um, I'd stripped all the bolts on the on the wheel, um, you know, and take the wheel apart and place all those bits and pieces. Um, I just had no idea. I'd never done anything. And yet that was, so that was in 2008 and I, I stuck it out and they let me come back in 2009 and then again in 2012. And that was where, honestly, that was, it was that moment. It was that muster that I was like, cattle, cattle is what I want to do. Before that point in time at uni, I'd really been interested in soil science and cropping and let's be honest I was never really interested in sheep production but I was definitely interested in farming I'd never even thought about pastoralism because McLeod's daughters was farming I didn't even really know anything about up north or cattle stations so it was that opportunity um, and I think also it was a bit of tough love that made me hustle harder and really go after what I wanted because I remember during that first muster speaking to somebody up there and saying oh this is pretty cool like I wouldn't mind being a station manager one day and I was pretty well told well mate you can't even drive like a four-wheel drive and you don't know how to you know do anything like it's pretty unlikely and I went home 
that year. And remember, I, I didn't even have a manual license. And I came back the next year with a MR, so a medium rigid truck license, uh, which is all I was allowed to get at that point in time on my P plates. And I'd also done a night course in welding. So it was like an eight or 12 week course once a week at night time about 20 something minutes away from where I lived and here I was like this little 19 year old girl and everyone else in the class was like 60 year old men and I just loved it I was like this is so cool Um, even though I was terrified of fire so using an oxy torch is like once it's lit that's fine but actually lighting the oxy torch like oh it's like using a Bunsen burner just not fun Um, or having to light a gas stove just not a fan but um yeah I really had to go after what I wanted because it wasn't yeah it was that little bit of tough love and being like well if you want this you're gonna have to you know really lift your game and I did and when I came back in 2012 I had my HC my heavy combination truck license by then and granted they've still never let me drive a truck uh, in 2012 I finally did get to do some welding I was allowed to weld in the yards um, but yeah I just I learned so much that was my first experience and and to be honest, I learned a lot of good habits from that family. We, before they went mustering, they would sit everyone down and give them a talk about livestock handling and explain the flight zone and pressure and the different points on the mob as we're mustering and just basic cattle handling and just and rules and how to be courteous during a muster to your fellow musterers and whatnot. And that was my first introduction to everything. And I'm very lucky that they are very good livestock handlers. So I... I started off on the right foot and I learnt good habits. Um, but yeah, just, you know, I definitely made my fair share of mistakes and was just a bit of a a special person while I was there. And they let me come back and they, they even gave me some work down on their farm down south and always um, supported me. So I would like to give a big thank you, which I, you know, I have before. And it's in the, um, I think the a part in our book in our central station book I know I mentioned their, them in there as well as somebody who's been quite impactful on my journey even though I hate the word journey but you know you know what I'm trying to get at so yeah the Snell family okay so next in line is Peter McGilchrist or Dr. Peter McGilchrist who was my thesis supervisor at uni and he's also been in a couple of episodes on cattle station classroom in our other podcast so Pete Um, was a lecturer at Murdoch University and I actually was a student at the University of Western Australia but UWA is very wheat and sheep and after I'd come back from that first time mustering with the Snells I was like cows all I want to do is cows and in our final year of uni we had to do a a one-year-long research project and I think it was in the year before Pete had come to just give a guest lecture at our at our uni and it was in meat science and I was like okay well this person knows about cows maybe I can you know work with them I and even though I was like I don't even go here like I don't even go to Murdoch but please adopt me and so I reached out to Pete and he very graciously agreed to mentor me and be one of my supervisors and I ended up doing my research project collaboratively through UWA and Murdoch and I knew nothing about meat science and generally the students that Pete took on had already done some of this stuff because that's things you get to learn at Murdoch that at that point in time weren't available at UWA. But Pete took me on and gave me a crash course in meat science. I had never done a research project on my own before, you know, anything like that. He helped me apply for the funding, write my literature review 
And then the coolest part was, um, so my research project involved working with cattle at a feedlot and taking measurements there. So I was looking at the impact of temperament on meat quality. So this was 2010. And Pete actually set me up with a job out at a feedlot. So I actually went and lived out at a feedlot for four or five months while I was collecting the data on the cattle during their alive phase. And then we would go to the abattoir together and collect samples once they'd been slaughtered on the kill floor. So that was my first time at a feedlot and my first time working there. And so that was a huge opportunity. And then to be able to go into the kill floor in an abattoir and learn about that that process, you know, I never had anything to do with beef production post farm gate before. So Pete, he just taught me so much. And even, you know, the closest avatar was an hour away. And I remember we'd leave super early, like almost it was barely even sunrise. And because we need to get down south to the avatars, you know, in time for the morning when they started killing. And I just learned so much. I just, I don't even, you know, and then it was, so there was stuff about the feedlot side of things and cattle production, then in the abattoirs, then just the whole actual research and how to write my my research thesis, how to put my presentation together, um, how to analyse all the data. I had like over, I think it was almost 3,000 samples and then with, the, well, 3,000 like animals and then there was three samples from each animal so I ended up doing like 9,000 like little pipette tube things that I had to test in this machine and I just learned so much but I also just learned a lot from Pete about how to talk to people and just act professionally and I don't even know how to articulate it now I mean I'm doing this whole episode off the cuff but I just it was a huge after um having a particularly rough time at UWA like I really felt like I fit in at Murdoch and Pete was a huge part of that like I was just treated as an equal um he was a really great mentor very encouraging you know was there to help me and never was kind of like oh you're my little slave student go and do this this and this like it was I was incredibly lucky that it was kind of handled as my project and he was there to support me rather than oh well you can assist on this and when we well bless when he when we kind of I had my thesis and then we turned my thesis which is you know tens and tens and you know it was for like 30 40 50 pages it was something horrifically long and then that was condensed into like a four or five page paper which was published in a scientific journal and Pete let me be lead author which is not that does not happen very often so usually it's the um research like the the main researchers and then the student who's helping on that project like comes last but he let me be the lead author so now when people cite that paper it's like Coombs et al which is really cool so again it's just giving these opportunities um and we've stayed in touch since and as as you would have picked up from our cattle station classroom episode but I just think you know some people are just there like you know are there and they'll help you but then there's other people that are just you know make the the learning fun and it made seeing all the cool stuff that he'd done made me want to do more and be more so yeah probably didn't articulate that too great (laughs) but like I said I'm doing this one off the cuff so hopefully you basically just get that Pete's a bit of an all-round legend um and was you know gave me introduced me to a lot of opportunities through an exposure through the feedlot industry the meat science um you know abattoirs a whole bunch of things All right, next on the list is Boyd Holden, who I'm pretty sure was episode five in this podcast. So Boydie uh, is a livestock 
um, what do you call it? Like a consultant. Um, he does a lot, a lot to do with animal welfare, auditing, um, behavior handling. He was a consultant for Meat and Livestock Australia for a very long time where he would travel to overseas countries and provide training and education in destination countries where we live exported our animals. Um, also doing audits and, and infrastructure design and improvements and all those sorts of things. And I met Boyd when I did my live export stock handlers course on board stock handler course in early 2011. I didn't even know that this was an option. I still had a year of uni left. And next minute I hear about this guy who's doing the practical part, but he was just, you know, gave us a little bit of background. Like my job is to go to say the Middle East or Indonesia, wherever. And I work with these people and I train them how to handle Australian livestock, which are far less domesticated than their local livestock. And, you know, um, I go and look at their facilities and say, you know, you should change this and do that. And, you know, this might work better for you. And I was just blown away. I was like, this is the coolest job ever. Like what a difference you're actually making in the world. So on our way from the hotel to a feedlot to do a practical uh, handling demonstration, I, I think it was on the way back, actually. I went and everyone got on the bus and I saw where Boyd was and I went and sat behind him Um and I was just like, hey. And he was like, hi. I was like, um, so basically what you do, I want to do. So can you just tell me how you got from like being at uni to where you are now? Like, what, what do I need to do? And he was very gracious and we had a good yarn. And he, I, I said, like, can I come and like watch what you do and, and learn from you? And he said, yes. And granted, you know, I, this is where, you know, I say, it takes two people like you've somebody you know to have the opportunity but you also still need to hustle yourself so Boyd said this was early 2011 and he goes well I'm coming back to WA in a couple months and I'm going up to the Pilbara to do a like one week livestock handling school on Yarry Station you can come if you want Um, you've just got to book your own tickets pay your own way get yourself there and I was like yeah of course so this is where I think you know um, which is I suppose a common theme throughout a lot of the things I've done is that Yes, there's you've got to be there yourself and have the hustle and do it. But then it's also, like I said, there's other people there helping you at the same time. But yeah, I ended up going to Yarry Station and Boyd let me like shadow him and learn learn about what he does. Um, and then I just I've kept in touch with him ever since. Even the next year, I remember working in the territory and having a few dramas with some livestock handling or watching some livestock handling and I'd call Boyd all the time. you like, Boyd, how do I, how do I communicate this to somebody or how do I change this? Um, and he's just always been there to lend a hand, to, to lend an ear and to advise me and guide me through things. Um, even when I, oh yeah, even when I lived in Canada, I used to bring Boyd because I, there was a time where I actually ended up doing like a little livestock handling school of my own for my crew in Canada at the feedlot I was working at. Um, and so ringing up Boyd and being like, hey, like, what should I say? And what do you, you know, and he's just always been there. Um, and very, yeah, just very, I suppose in this way, I suppose in this, in what he does, it would be easy enough to be like, no. Like, this is my thing. I don't want to teach you what I do because this is my business and, you know, you would become competition or whatever. But Boyd is the complete opposite. He's like, yeah, the more people that are doing this, the better. Let's get the message out there. Um, let's, yeah, the more the merrier. And, yeah, always, always replies to a message, always picks up the phone or calls you back. 
and just makes time and is very open with his knowledge. But again, it's that it's not, oh yeah, I'll just give you all the answers. You know, you, it's, it takes two again. So like you have to want to, you have to want the knowledge and you have to seek the answers and not just go and be like, Hey, this is my problem. Give me all the answers. You'd be like, this is my problem. These are some of the solutions I've come up with. These are some of the things I've tried. What do you think? Um, so he's very good that way as well, that he, again, as a really good mentor, um, and yeah, even, even to this day, we're still in touch and, uh, got to catch up with him in the Kimberley a couple of years ago at a livestock handling school that he did at Bulka station. And again, just, just happy to keep teaching me everything he knows. And I'm yeah very, very grateful for that. And everything I've done some livestock, livestock handling and animal welfare is a huge passion of mine and one of my main focus areas. And so much of what I know has come from Boyd and then he's also pointed me in the direction of other people and huge influence still to this day. Now next on the list is somebody from another country. Let's let's break this up and go international and that is Dr. Jason Ellis who was my uh, supervisor, my professor when I went to Kansas State University. So I didn't realise. I, I went to go do a master's and I landed or I was granted what is called an assistantship. So I was able to work for my professor on a research project and the work I would do for him or her, but I, I had a him. Um, basically, the way it works is that when you're an assistantship, you, you earn a salary and it, you, it covers your tuition and then you get a little bit of extra to live on. So I actually didn't realize before I moved to America that the way it works is that so you you apply for your program, you get matched up with your professor. Um, if you're lucky enough, you'll either be a teaching assistant, research assistant, or just a graduate assistant. So I was I was a graduate assistant. Um, so to support my professor in both in, in anything really, but usually the professors already have like let's say big big time research projects they're working on, and their graduate assistants just come in and support them on those projects. And generally, when you do your master's or your PhD, you do that, that comes under the umbrella of what your professor's major like grant funding is and what their major area of interest is. I didn't realize that when I started. And um, I was so, oh, I still can't believe how lucky I was. So I started college and didn't realize that my professor, his major grant that he was working on and his major research it was an e coli a food safety focusing on e coli project and as we were doing uh, agricultural education and communication the grant was about developing a curriculum to teach food safety in high schools in america but also communication to communicate you know food safety to the general public and while that was pretty cool and i still ended up doing work on that project i I just like, you know what, E. coli and food safety, it just doesn't light my fire. And if I've come all the way to live in America and do a research project, you know, for two years, I just don't know if I want to, you know, and the master's, the thesis, like it is a huge chunk of your life and your time. And I was, I just thought, it just doesn't light my fire. I was like, oh, good God, what have I got myself into here? But lo and behold, Dr. Ellis, being the absolute legend that he is, let me pick a different topic, something that I was crazy passionate about, 
Um, well, I didn't even come up with it until like the end of my first year because you only really do your master's in like the thesis part in the second year of your studies. And um, there, there definitely were connections to the broader theme of communicating with the public. Um, and so it did tie in, but it wasn't necessarily so much with food safety. And I just, I'd, I'd, there's no, I've not yet met another master's student who kind of got to customize and create their own um, project, which is just, yeah, I, I don't even, so, so grateful. So I'm going to find my project now and just read you out, guys. Like, So I'm just going to find my project now and read you out. So I'm just going to pull up my project now and read you out the abstract. So, cause I, and I've done some blogs on this on the website and I actually, am going to do a, a podcast on this with one of my other professors. Um, but so yeah, rather than doing a, a thesis or some research into food science and food safety, sorry, food safety, education and communication, I did mind more about how the agricultural industry uses or people within the agricultural industry use language um, and discourse to communicate about the industry and basically defend it and, and kind of critiquing it. So this is my abstract. Hopefully it makes sense. <laughs> okay. The general public is more generationally and geographically removed from agricultural production today than ever before, yet as influential as ever with regards to its ability to impact the operating conditions of the animal agriculture industry. To date, the agriculture industry has focused research and extension on how to educate and persuade the public in order to gain support for its practices and policies. Little Work has investigated how the language choices of those communicating about agriculture may be functioning to position themselves and other participants with regards to authority and credibility and how this affects their communication and the industry as a whole. This study sought to develop an understanding as to how three key groups in the animal agriculture conversation, those being experts, professional communicators and agricultural advocates, use discourse and language to position themselves and other participants, their explanations of opposition to animal, animal agriculture, and their ideas about how to best present and justify their arguments to the wider public. In addition to this, the study also sought to understand what power structures and dynamics exist within the conversation. Semi-structured interviews were conducted to collect data for a critical discourse analysis. The discursive practices of the participants function to ultimately undermine and delegitimize the role of the public and individuals and groups opposed to animal agriculture, as well as position the industry and its constituents as the only authoritative and credible voices in the animal agriculture conversation. This is likely to be prohibitive to achieving the goals of agricultural communication activities. Those communicating on behalf of the animal agriculture industry should become more aware of how their beliefs, values and ideologies impact the discourse from which they are operating, as well as how their communication is functioning. This research was undertaken from a critical inquiry perspective, shedding light on some of the power structures inherent between the animal agriculture industry and the general public. 
Others undertaking agricultural, sociology and related research should consider doing so, integrating a similar theoretical perspective to continually challenge the assumptions and conditions under which the industry operates. Now, hopefully that didn't just sound like a whole bunch of gibberish to you guys, but what, you know, this was the first research of its kind in like in this space. So there had been some research done previously on language use and how language functions, but all done from, uh, say, activist or vegan perspectives. And I want to be very clear that those two things are not the same, but it was all from a, a negative or an anti-agriculture perspective. So people criticizing animal agriculture, basically. That's where all the, all the previous research in this space had done. There'd never been anything like this done before, um, which made it very hard to write my literature review because usually you build your research upon the, the, you know, it's like a building block and you, someone else has set the foundation and then you go up from there. So, I mean, just what an opportunity a, to do something that I was so, basically I was just fed up with the way people in agriculture talk um, about agriculture and defend the industry or promote the industry and, you know, um, and then also the language we use and how we treat people who are not in this industry. Um, and the the power structures within that and the discourse. And so to be able to do and, – and so, yeah, to do this rather, you know, I just – yeah, so lucky, guys, so lucky. And, and not only that, but it was something completely new and he was so supportive and just very – you know, I was this – crazy Australian international grad student, you know, the first international grad student they'd had at the, at, in that program. Um, I was quite, you know, I was me. I was, you never knew what I'd be wearing that day or um, what I'd, you know, what I'd look like. And I was always, well, anybody who knows me, there's lots of energy um, and always off an adventure. And, you know, I'd be, I'd do my work and I might not have classes for a few days. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going off to Nebraska or Texas or Wyoming or whatever. Like I see you in a few days. Um, Just very different to the traditional grad student and, he just always put up with me and was always there for me and encouraged encouraged me and provided a lot of opportunities and I learned so much from Dr. Ellis. Even when I went back in so I graduated twenty sixteen at in December and I went back December twenty eighteen um for a holiday to visit all my Americans and caught up with Dr. Ellis and yeah, just I and I've even um emailed him a few times about things since college and Again, just somebody who it could have it could have been a very different experience. It could have been no, you're here under this grant. You will do this predetermined research that we've already you know come up with. You will that's that's what you're gonna do. No ifs, ands, or buts. You know, which is what it's like for a lot of grad students. And instead, there was just this whole you know openness and acceptingness, um, or acceptance. Sorry, acceptingness is not a word says somebody with a master's in communications, awkward, um, you know, acceptance of who I was and what I was interested in and just provided as much support as possible to help me achieve uh, what I wanted to achieve. And I am eternally grateful for that. Next, we're going to keep on the international theme, but we're going to move from America to Canada. And I just want to give a shout out to Ted Stoven. So Ted runs a website called Everything Cowboy. Or a, let's be honest, it started off as a website, but it's it's a media company now, uh, which, you know, has social media, website, podcast, um, now merchandise, you know, really cool. I met Ted back in 2013 when I first lived in Canada. And 
I wanted to catch up again when I moved to the States. And so 2015, I flew up to Canada for the Calgary Stampede. And Ted was covering that under his uh, media company and said, hey, do you want to um, I don't know if I asked or if he offered, but somehow I was able to come and like do work experience for him at the Calgary Stampede. So he helped set me up with credentials. I got to go. I remember 2015 Calgary Stampede. I was behind the shoots. So there's like the actual platform, like the shoots where the Cowboys are. And then just like half a meter behind it is a platform where all the media and whatnot stand. And I was there with Ted. Like, and then even after that, I'd go into different areas around the arena, um, you know, go into the media room. I just never even experienced anything like that before. And Ted gave me that opportunity. And in 2016, early over, I went home for Christmas that year and bought my first camera. And at, it was at that event, I met Covey Moore, who is another person that's on this list, who was doing the photography for Ted. And he is a rank fo- uh, like rodeo photographer. And so I was, and I'd become really interested in that. And I'd gone back to college, hired out a, a digital camera from the library and started photographing rodeo practice. And then in early 2016, I came back to the States for school after winter break. And I saw that the PBR was coming to Kansas City, which is just two hours away from where I was going to college. And I sent Ted a message saying, because I knew he did a lot of coverage with PBR. And I was, I said, oh, are you coming to cover the event in Kansas City? And he said, no but would you like to go on behalf of me? And I, of course, jumped at that opportunity. And through Ted, I was able to get credentials to attend that event, to interview some of the cowboys, to take photographs, to write stories for his website. And so that's basically where it started. Through Ted, I was able to attend a number of professional rodeos in America and Canada and come under uh, a media pass. And that's where I really developed my rodeo photography and I would do some journalism for him as well. And and again, as I've said before, this is where it takes two. Like Ted gave me that opportunity. I was so blessed to be able to apply for credentials under his media company. I myself, then the, my part of the deal was that I hustled. I paid my own way. I paid all my travel expenses, accommodation. You know, when I went to event, you know, I, I covered everything. Um, but for that experience, which is just priceless. So what, again, while in sometimes where I've told stories where I'm like, yeah, you know, it's so important to hustle, to go and ask for these opportunities. You know, Ted, Ted let me go to that first one, but then I started to ask for each event after that. I was like, hey, do you mind? Can I go to this one? Can I go to that one? So yes, there was the initiative and the hustle on my end to say, hey, can I do this? I'll pay my own way. I'll work for free, you know, whatever. Again, it still wouldn't have happened if he hadn't just said, Yes. And given me that opportunity. And it was a huge thing. It was just a huge opportunity because even though Ted knew me, I could have, you know, when you're trusting somebody to not just represent you, but represent your business, I could have gone to those events and been a total ass. Um, you know, that was his reputation on the line. So it was a huge opportunity um, that, to, and, and through that, I met other people um, and and through being able to go to those events and start building a portfolio of photography and and interviews, uh, both written and and audio, I was able to make more connections and attend other events through other people that worked in the industry, as well as I reached out to PBR Australia and got to go to the PBR World Finals on their behalf. I would never have got my foot in the door and started where I am if Ted hadn't given me that opportunity. So thanks, Ted.
And so as I just mentioned before, Covey, wow, this episode's getting really long. I need to start hustling and talking a little bit faster. But um, a big part of that also is Covey. Covey Moore, my biggest photography mentor, absolutely insane photographer. And aside from just being the person who inspired me with his work to begin with, just, again, being there to answer questions, to encourage me, to to talk through things with me ever since I first saw him at Calgary Stampede. Um, every time, you know, me, even me just calling up and going, oh my God, I'm about to shoot this event. Like what settings should I use? I don't know how to do this, this or that. And then to the more things like, oh, you know, I want to change the way I'm, the stories I'm telling with these photographs and I want to take my photography to a whole other level. And through that, you know, he's become one of my best mates, but just insanely talented and always made time for me and, while I'm very proud of the rodeo photography that I do now, and I, I'm, yeah, I'm really proud of it. A lot of that is the influence of Kobe and and his support and him being just such a badass and making the time of day for me. Because let's be honest, I've reached out to a bucket load of photographers. Oh, I, I've reached out to people in all industries and ask questions and advice and the number of messages that just get left on read or people who have given me back like fake answers. I remember once when I first started out, I asked this photographer like, oh, what presets do you use? And they're like, oh, I don't use presets. I just make my, you know, do this, this and this and whatever. And I was like, ha liar. Um, but, you know, and that's totally fine. Not everyone wants to share their secrets, but there's a lot of people I reach out to. And I'm like, oh, I was just wondering like, what gear do you like this was when I was first starting out I don't really do that anymore but you know um or just yeah there's a lot of people I'll, I'll reach out to and it used to be basic things like oh what gear do you use or what settings do you use and now it's more like bigger broader questions like hey how do we tackle this idea or what do you think is a good way to tell this story or can I just ask your perspective on this and there's you know a lot of people that don't really have the time you know don't care to engage back or um, just aren't interested and that's totally fine that's their prerogative let alone give you the time of day and and the guidance and the mentoring so that also in that perspective um no sorry not that pers- wow for somebody with a comms degree I'm a bit communicationally special um also not a word but anyway in that respect uh a big shout out to ray martinez who is like my camera guru all things photography all things technical just always there for me always always got a facebook message thread going just nerding out over settings and new equipment coming out and techniques and just everything he's also again become one of my greatest friends um he was lived in the same town as me in kansas and we just nerd out over photography stuff all the time. Uh, again, so much of what I've learned, you know, I do a lot of um, education online, but so much of what I've learned is from seeking out mentors. And it's these people giving me the time of day. Like I would not be half the photographer I am without these people in my life. Okay, so let's bring it back to Australia now. And I want to talk about my most former boss, Trevor Price. So, some of you may know I worked for the Ag Department in Western Australia for the last two years. I left that job in June 2020 and the entire time my boss was a man named Trevor Price who has become a huge mentor and friend 
And he's just an all-round dead set legend, guys. I, I don't even know where to start. And I just actually recorded this and then deleted it because I ended up waffling on for like 20 minutes about how great Trevor is. And I was like, well, okay, let's just make this a little bit more succinct. So basically, Trevor, very similar to what I spoke about with Jason Ellis in Kansas, my professor, Trevor is incredibly supportive and government can be very, very restrictive. And you hear no more than you hear yes and it's not even like a no but you know but maybe let's do this it's just a no um or and and a go back to your box go back and tick those boxes that you're just you know and don't don't even try and do anything different whereas trevor was so supportive and encouraging and you could always come to him with ideas i was never worried to just like I'd either like walk into his office or I'd just sit in my chair and like that had wheels on it and just like wheel myself down the like the corridor and be like, hey, and just pop my head in the door um, and just, you know, I'd be like, hey, I have had this idea or what do you think about this? And he always had so much energy and passion and enthusiasm. And even if it wasn't a good idea or it wasn't something we could do, it was very um careful about the way he it wasn't like a honor oh, no, Steph that's a crap idea or you know that's just not what we do he'd be like well maybe that would be um yeah that's really cool but maybe that's something more MLA would do or maybe um KPCA could take that on or you know whatnot but for the most part it was yeah yeah and then like and so much autonomy in this job so I know some people particularly in government they're like there's a lot of micromanagement whereas Trevor would be like hey this is your area um, these are the goals you need to achieve, how you want to get there. Like this is A and this is Z. How you want to get from A to Z is up to you. Like, you know, obviously I still had to run things by him and he was my my boss and whatnot. But there was so much autonomy in how all of us in our team achieved those goals. And that was the main thing for him is that and the best part of this job, I think, is that, yes, we it was we had to achieve our goals. We had to meet targets and KPIs and all those sorts of things. But he gave us so much freedom in how we got there, which really um, I know myself and the other two girls on our team, we grew so much in that time because we would have so many meetings like between ourselves and be like, yeah, let's do this or let's do that. And then we'd go to Trevor with an idea. And I've got friends that work in similar roles in other government departments. And I know that's just not how it flies. Like we had, yeah, we we had very, very lucky um, here, uh, you know, I've heard, I, I just know how things work in other, in other places. Um, and we were very, very fortunate and so much autonomy. And he just, you know, you had an idea and he would really support you. He was really big on professional development or is big on professional development. So through him, I got to go to a number of courses and schools, um, particularly the Grazing for Profit School in Queensland. That was a pretty huge thing for me. And just really you know, yes, we all worked for government, but just not your typical government person. And for me, that was such a blessing and so fortunate. I think if I'd come into this role, I would not have lasted anywhere near as long in this job. Um, And I I did, I really struggled working for government after spending my entire career in private industry. Going from private industry to to being a public servant is incredibly difficult. Um, And I think if I had had to work under many of the other people that I did work with I don't think I would have lasted half as long um but Trevor also had spent the majority of his career in private industry and just had that I don't even know how to describe it but basically 
all round legend and very supportive, a lot of energy and enthusiasm and and that was the reason I lasted as long in the job as I did. Um, and I was very, I was very sad to leave my team behind. But um, it, it's been six months now, and I still get regular texts from Trevor, being like, "Hey, how are you going?" Like he knows that job took a lot out of me, and he still checks in on me. He still will send me a message and be like, "Hey, how are you going? How are you feeling? How are you traveling?" And um, it's so great that I know that even though government itself wasn't necessarily the greatest experience working in that team and working with Mariah and Claire and Trev and and a lot of the other people in the office but particularly that core team was just a such a great experience and I'll always be you know those are your lifelong friends so yeah that's my thank you to Trevor um for just letting me be me and you know as people have probably picked up I'm very loud and quirky I'm also can be very I learned in this job um very opinionated and I really if I have an opinion on something particularly when it comes to the pastoralists and the pastoral community beef production anything to do with station life um I can be very opinionated and push for and there are a lot of times I really didn't agree with the department's position or what we were doing and that was a huge I guess one thing Trevor did is like just so much guidance and mentoring in learning to cope and deal with government processes. Um, there were so many things that just frustrated me and I could have burnt out a lot faster than I did. But Trevor really, he was always there checking in, you know, something would happen. We'd all, we'd, you know, something could happen that we'd all be disappointed about or feel let down by the system or whatnot. And Trevor was a, you know, just there um, guiding us through it and saying and you know just keeping us going and keeping us positive and yeah I don't I would not have lasted a millisecond as long as I did um, without him as our boss and I know the other girls feel the same way okay last but most certainly not least I'm very excited to spend the rest of the podcast talking about the one the only Jane Sale So for those of you who don't know, and shame on you if you don't, Jane is the brains behind Central Station. She had the idea for the website or for a website where all different cattle stations would take turns sharing their stories way back in 2012. And then our friend Catherine Marriott or Maz put us in touch in 2013 when Jane was like, all right, well, we've had this idea. I want to get it going Maz put us in touch and then I built the website for Jane and it's been, you know, and then we're happily ever after ever since. So Jane, um, I think episode six, the episode after Boyd, so make sure you go listen to that. Although that's just like one very small part of Jane's story and I've got about 12 more episodes I want to do with her. But Jane is, where do I even start? Um, Let's think. So Jane... I didn't even meet her until we'd been working together for almost a year because I started the website when I was living in Canada and I don't think it was until early 2014, so almost a year later that we met in Melbourne of all places. Jane is an absolute boss lady. Her and her husband Hayden came to the Kimberley, um, started a cattle station from scratch more or less, built that one bare block um, which had like 800 head and a handful of watering points. So they've built that into that then became three cattle stations. Then that was sold, but they still work for that company. And then they had a bunch of subleases. They've been absolute pioneers in terms of um, working with indigenous communities and having really healthy, positive relationships and things that really serve the communities. 
really great outcomes. And then also now, basically now they manage about 13 cattle stations. It's insane. They are trailblazers. They are incredibly good humans. But throughout this whole time, Jane, I guess similar to Jason Ellis and Trevor, has given me a lot of autonomy with Central Station because, I mean, hello, the lady's running 13 cattle stations. She's busy, but still very involved. But just, yeah, the biggest thing is Jane is my sounding board and my mentor and just like my wise older sister. She's not definitely not old enough to be my mum, but I suppose... So we're out 15 years apart. Oh, I don't know if I should say that, Jane, because now people might be able to work out how young you are. Like how I said how young you are, not how old you are. But Jane is just, I don't know. And it's it's not even been like a very obvious thing. It's been like very subtle over the last eight years that I've realised how much of an impact she's made on my life. But yeah, she is the sounding board. I have an idea or let's say I get crazy angry about something and I'll just be like, Jane, rah, 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 like, you know, just be, you know, proper mad. And she'll like talk me down off the ledge. And, you know, I've just learned so much from her. And I've learned a lot in terms of conducting business and engaging with other people. I re- I'll always remember one lesson I learned. So I just moved to America and I was supposed to start my assistantship and it got put back by six months. So the first six months um, I was in America, I paid my own way for everything. And as like international student fees, like I basically had to use all my savings. And I said to Jane, oh, I really, you know, and, and Central Station, it's not, it, it's um, it's sort of like pocket money, I suppose. Like it's it's not a major sort of source of income but I said Jane I need to go find some more sponsors and then I need to like make a bit more because of you know it's so expensive over here and this has been put back and so if I go find a few extra um, thousand dollars in sponsorship can I please have that and Jane was like well yes but for future when you're asking someone for money don't tell them why you need it tell them why you deserve it so don't say, you know, I need a pay rise because of X, Y, and Z. Say, I deserve a pay rise because this is the value I bring to the business and blah, 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 blah. And I've taken that with me in everything I've done in the last five years. Whenever I've asked for money or negotiated a salary, anything, I say, well, this is the value I bring and this is the price I put on that value. Um, I never say, oh, well, you know, I want to go on holidays or I want to save up for a for a land cruiser or something. So I need to be earning x amount of dollars and so even when when i've been in like discussing salaries with other people and they go oh well what do you want to make and i say i've always i I now respond well it's not about what i want to make it's about what the value of my contribution is because sometimes people have approached me for jobs and said oh we haven't really got anything in mind yet and well well but you know what are you thinking of ballpark and i go well it doesn't it's not necessarily about what i want to make it's about what tell me the scope of work and tell me what I'll be doing. Because if you just want me to be doing, let's say a labor job, well, even though I'd like to make six figures, like I can't, you know, that's not the value of that job. But if I'm doing something, you know, let's say in strategy or whatever, if I'm doing something here, then that's a different value on that job. So that is a huge lesson I've learned from Jane. Don't, don't ever ask for more money and say like, Oh, I need it. Think about your value. And, and that's where you come from in that conversation what else I don't even know I suppose that's almost a whole episode I might even just do an episode with Jane about all the things she's taught me like how to pick a good bottle of champagne 
I am not a big drinker and I never even really had much champagne. I thought champagne was really gross, but Jane has slowly worn me down and now I have (laughs) a taste for verve. Um, So thank you for that, Jane. Um, That's a very expensive habit, but nah, that's, um, that's great. Jane, I suppose, yeah, some of it has been direct, but there's a lot of just leading by example, I suppose, that I learned from Jane. Um, Jane's on the pastoral lands board. She's on other things. She's just, you know, going from a city girl in Melbourne to running 13 pastoral stations in the Kimberley, like just being around her and seeing how she, you know, and it's not all just about the pastoral industry, seeing how she uh, manages her relationships with her family, um, Jane and Hayden, their relationship and then how they prioritise family and their children and education is, you know, you just learn so much from being around people. You know how they say you are the sum of like the people that you spend the the most time with, you know, the five people you spend most of your time with, even though I suppose in recent years, most of that time has been um, through WhatsApp. But yeah, I just, I don't even know. It's like I've spent so much time talking. I've got a bit of a sore throat now. Should have started off with Jane. But basically she is, she's always there to listen. She always, and she just is like my wise fairy godmother, I suppose. She, you know, she's not that much older than me, but she's certainly a lot wiser. And whether it's business, people, relationships, anything, Jane has a really great perspective on things that I, and she's so encouraging. And again, yeah, with the autonomy, she allows me to do things, um, to make mistakes. You know, she doesn't really, she's very good with the way, if I do make a mistake or do something silly, you know, it's not a, you know, you you don't get bashed over the head like this. She's very good in the way she handles things. And I'm just very grateful to have someone like her, you know, while I say I've got the autonomy to do a lot of what I do in Central Station, it's just that sounding board for so many things. And and just in life, like I, I, relied, I rely a lot still on her opinion today and her perspective on things, whether it's uh, my personal life or industry issues. She's just a really cool person to have in my life. And I'm very, very lucky that it was just one random connection that, you know, she said to Maz, hey, I need someone to... um to make this website for me so we can do these blogs. And Maz is like, oh, yeah, I think Steph makes websites. Let me just connect the two of you. And eight years later, I've got one of my best mates and mentors and everything all rolled into one and a bubbles buddy. So hopefully that, you know, I feel like I haven't done that justice. But hopefully by me saying that I haven't done it justice, it kind of impresses upon you how important and incredible she is as a human being. And we'll just do more episodes on her. So, you know you can see for yourself but yeah so like I said at the beginning of this episode done some really I've been really blessed to do some really cool things um you know work on cattle stations around the country um, be involved with the cattle council be you know on cattle council committees be the the national rising champion live in America um be involved in research projects photographing major events meeting really cool people there's a lot of things that I am you know, very proud of. And yes, on my behalf, I will take ownership that I hustle. I've done a lot of things for free. I stalk a lot of people and just ask, hey, can I shadow you for this? Can I do work experience for that? Hey, you know, always. I do take ownership and credit for a lot of what I've done. But as I've said in this episode, you know, it takes a village and there have been so many people who have supported me and guided me along the way. And I just wouldn't be where I am without them. So without further ado, 
I hope this is a good final episode for 2020 and that perhaps you guys can all take a moment to think back about the people who have helped you get to where you are um, and we can all go forward into 2021 thinking um, and, rec- and and maybe recognising more so in the moment the people that are helping us get to where we want to be and where we are right now. <laughs>